Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Over the last year, we've all been through a lot. In addition to the many major costs, there have been smaller, subtler costs as well. One thing I've really noticed is the friction that's been added to almost any decision that gets made. Whether it's trying to participate at work effectively, keep up with friends, or even just go to the grocery store, this whole new level of thought and effort is involved in most every decision. This friction pervades our lives, and it's natural for that increased friction to lead to increased anxiety. What might have once been reserved for particularly stressful events and experiences is now, well, kind of everywhere. So today we're going to be talking about fear and anxiety. Particularly, we're going to work through a specific experience of anxiety that somebody might have and create a kind of plan, start to finish, for addressing that experience. To help us do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I'm really psyched about this topic. Mm, mm -hmm. It's one of my favorite topics. Yeah. I tend to be a little anxious by temperament. (laughs) And also, it's one that's very profound because it gets at what could be called a kind of underlying primal anxiety that's just hardwired into us Mm, as mm -hmm. animals in our evolution living in the wild, you know, vulnerable to being attacked and eaten at any moment, potentially. So how do we grapple with this underlying sense of uneasiness, apprehensiveness? The world is threat level orange. Deep, wonderful topic. Yeah, it's such a huge part of people's lived experiences these days, just all the many ways in which These little things have become so much harder and, frankly, scarier than they used to be. But before we get into today's episode, I do want to give you a couple of quick reminders. First, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to us through the platform of your choice. It really does help us out. Also, we have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. Finally, I have a new YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash c slash Hansen. I've been sharing a video once a week for the last couple of months, and I'm planning on continuing to do that in the future. And if you enjoy the topics that we explore here on the podcast, you'll probably like the channel as well. Okay, so I'd like to start by getting really, really granular here and walking through an acute experience of anxiety that somebody might be having. Whether it's that they have a doctor appointment coming up or they're stressed out about, hey, they haven't left their house for the better part of a year and they're headed back into the wider world, People have a lot of things going on in their lives right now that are naturally pretty anxiety-provoking. I'm going to offer a specific example here, but you can really expand these ideas out to most any experience of anxiety that somebody might be having. So let's say that somebody, a friend, comes to you and says, Rick, I'm really worried about fill-in-the-blank. Just for right now, let's say that they have a doctor's appointment coming up because during some previous appointment, the doctor said to them that they had some weird results on a test and they need to come back in to get more tests done. And they're really pretty worried about this. So where would you start with them? I would start first with accepting the anxiety. Hmm. It's counterintuitive, but if we accept that we feel anxious in all kinds of ways, ranging from very subtle forms of uneasiness and unsettledness, all the way out to panic and terror and everything in between, we can start by, yeah, that's how I feel. And what that does that helps us cope with anxiety and also function better is that it disrupts rumination. 
instead of spinning out into a bunch of thoughts, we stay closer to our primary experience. Yes, I am scared about this. And there's a part of this that I think appreciates what I was getting at earlier, this sort of natural living organism kind of level. It's natural for there to be pain if a brick falls on your foot. It's natural to be anxious about a potential health issue, something that might you know, really kill you potentially, right? Of mm-hmm. course you're anxious about that. And yet, if we can accept that anxiety, that primary experience, and also related to it might be other kinds of feelings, such as, let's say, people not being supportive enough of us, or let's say being angry at the doctor's stupid office and their voicemail tree and all the rest of that. (laughs) Their bedside manner sucks, whatever it is. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. The closer you get to your primary experience, rather than spinning out into the story about it, the more that will tend to shift your relationship to what you're feeling, and you won't be adding secondary reactions to the root primary emotions and sensations in your body. And it is those secondary reactions that we mainly suffer. So that's the first thing, Mm, is accept mm -hmm. how you feel. Mm -hmm. Uh, It helps to resource yourself so you're able to accept how you feel. A little bit of understanding about why you're doing it, a little bit of mindfulness, being able to step back from it. But just, ah, that's how I feel. This is reminding me immediately of our conversation with Stephen Hayes just a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. around acceptance and commitment therapy, how Like when we stop pushing away the truth of parts of our experience, whether, as he was saying, they be elements of personal history or, Mm -hmm. as we're saying right here, they be the authentic emotional experience that you're going through. Wow. Often we become much more capable of meeting that experience in effective ways. But if we're just denying it to ourselves, if we're saying, no, I'm not actually anxious or, oh, this is totally irrational or, wow, other people don't go through this experience or whatever that kind of voice in the head is saying to you that is effectively shaming you for what you're going through right now. It's very, very hard to address the experience when you're not even confident that you're having the experience mm-hmm. in an authentic way. So we do have to kind of start with that, that process of acceptance, I think. Beautiful. Second, recognize what's all right right now. Mm-hmm. And usually, unless in the moment, you're drowning or, or being attacked or something overwhelming is happening, you're actually basically all right in the moment, in the present, whatever the future may hold. Anxiety is anticipatory. That's its nature. It's about what could happen next. But in the present, you can recognize that, well, you're still breathing. You're still here. You're still thinking. Your mind is still working. You're basically okay. And you can also recognize that what's working around you. People are trying to help. You may well have friends. This is only about seeing what's true. It's not about pie in the sky. But around us are all kinds of things that are basically all right right now. They're still working. They're okay right now. And in the process of just recognize what's still all right right now, that can bring you into a sense of calming and centering. You know, you kind of look around and you go, okay, ain't dead yet. Okay, I'm still able to function here. Okay, I'm, I'm going to help myself calm down a little bit. I'm going to take a few breaths. I'm going to notice that I can still drink water. I can still eat food. I can still talk with people. There are other things that are still good, even if parts of reality totally suck. Okay, and in the process of that, I can calm and center myself. 
So that's the second thing that I think is really useful to do. Yeah, completely true. I think that that's super useful. It's a major point that you've raised on the podcast previously, the fact that most of the time when we're doing all of this negative ideation about what's going to happen in the future, we're really pretty okay in the present. Mm -hmm. Of course, sometimes that's not true, but much of the time it is. And that kind of reminds me of this idea of bounding the problem that we've talked about previously on the podcast. Often what happens when we get into a negative cycle of rumination is that everything is turned up to like a 12 on a 10-point scale, right? It's not just going to be bad, it's going to be a total freaking disaster for us in the future. Because that's what the mind does. It wants you to be really, really frightened about what could plausibly, and I use the word plausibly very loosely here, happen in the future. But much of the time, if we actually do a process of kind of going through how bad would it be really if this thing happened, the problems get smaller. Also, by bounding it, we know what's not happening right now. I am not currently actively in pain. I am not currently actively under threat. And that can help just kind of reduce the size of the fear in the mind, or at the very least, really clarify what the real problem is that you actually are facing, that you actually do need to rally resources to support yourself around. Yeah, you know, there's the classic thing about the two mistakes any animal can make, right? Mistake number one is you think there's a tiger in the bushes, but there's no tiger really. The other mistake is you think the coast is clear and actually there's a tiger about to eat you. And Mother Nature has evolved us to make the first mistake a thousand times to avoid making the second mistake even once, right? So we tend yeah. to, yeah, overestimate threats. And I'm really walking through this from the inside out. So I'll, I'll make it real. Okay, because, you know, I have health issues, right? You get older, you accumulate weird stuff, like, whoa, what's about that? Mm -hmm. So there you are. And the second thing I'm kind of emphasizing, you're establishing a basic sense of calming and centering that draws upon the feeling, the reassuring relief of recognizing what's still basically okay in the present, in the present. So you're sort of establishing a base from which then you can launch. And then that then takes me to the third suggestion. And all this could happen in less than half a minute, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, all of what I'm saying, if you kind of move through it fast. But the third one is take heart. Get in touch with the heart. Heart for yourself, compassion for yourself, receiving, caring from other people to the extent it's real, having heart for the other people around you. If you're sitting in a waiting room and you're really scared, Look around at the other people in the waiting room and see if you can find heart for them and you will be less scared. You will feel less scared right there because the feeling of connection innately, neurobiologically is calming and reassuring and soothing. And when you, when you find a sense of your heart, including even sensing in the physical area of your heart in your chest, you start tapping into a sense of courage and encouragement, whose root meaning, as you know, is centered in the word for heart in, I think, French, mm -hmm. something like that. And so that would be my third major suggestion. You know, heart, find heart, come to your heart, return to your heart, be heartfelt, open your heart, be wholehearted in how you're engaging this. And that will help you a lot with anxiety too. Just thinking again, maybe about your personal experience here. I know that you went through this health consideration a while back where you had this mole or something similar on the side of your face. You had to get- Melanoma. Melanoma, yeah, on the side of your face that you had to get removed. It was 
you know, really very real, oh, yeah. <laughs> actually, at the time, certainly pretty disturbing, if not outright scary. Mm -hmm. And you had to go through this process yourself. You're in that third step. What did you do to go into that feeling of like connection or heartfeltness? I was honest about the ways in which I wanted a hug. Mm, that's lovely, yeah. For example, I wanted to feel cared for. A layer in me felt like a scared little furry animal that just wanted to curl up in a corner and whimper and, and be petted. Very, you know, a primal fear of potentially lethal cancer. And mm -hmm. that was part of it. I found myself in a much more open sort of way, being present with other people, your mom, you know, your sister, uh, you, just being real with people. Yeah. And actually by extension, I found myself appreciating the medical people, the physicians, mm, the technicians, mm -hmm. the nurses mm -hmm. who did the procedure on me and in a very high tech way and got rid of the darn thing. And I'm cool. That was five years ago and no issue since. So those are different ways. And, and I think in that as well, frankly, there's a shift of a stance toward ourselves in which we are comforting ourselves. And we're also bringing a certain wisdom to ourselves that recognizes that there's a limit to our influence. You've spoken a lot about this and there's only so much we can do. So you're turning inward and, and with compassion even as well to how you feel. These are just beautiful, powerful ways. And I think in it too, there's a certain dignity. Sometimes people are embarrassed about their health issues. Like, oh, it's my fault, I'm not cured yet. Oh, the doctors must think I'm lazy. No. There's dignity and nobility and self-respect that's available in our frailty. And you can kind of feel that as well when you tap into your heart about something that, mm. that worries you and scares you. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like, yes, off to the side of awareness, there's this red light flashing. I got it. The thing you're afraid of. And anxious, maybe even catastrophizing voices in you are yammering away over there. Okay, I got it. And that over here, in the foreground of awareness, in the center of awareness, you can keep bringing attention back in this third practice, really for anxiety, of wholeheartedness. You can keep coming back to a sense of being wholehearted about this, even though those other lights are flashing and voices are murmuring away. What's really present for me in what you're saying is just what we can get out of our authentic emotional experience and what we can get to an extent out of like contacting our own vulnerability. Because I think that that sort of heart-opened place is a wonderful place to relate to other people from. And of course, we've talked about that over and over again on the podcast, whether it be overtly about open-heartedness or it'd be about connecting with people who are different from you, or it'd be about having empathy and sympathy for others or whatever. But most of the time, in my experience, coming as somebody who certainly, I don't know, 20 years ago, if not 15 years ago or 10 years ago, I would not describe as being, I'm trying to find the right way to put this, in very vulnerable contact with, with my own interior in a way that it was presented to other people as such. So maybe I was feeling it, but I certainly wasn't relating to other people that way. Yeah. It's very guarded, very defended, very walls up. It is very hard to be empathic and connected from that place. Yeah. It's just really hard. Like, it's almost impossible, practically speaking. And sometimes we'll have experiences in life, whether it's a threatening diagnosis or it's 
being concerned about a school assignment, or it's, wow, I'm worried about going to the grocery store because I don't want to catch a deadly disease. Whatever it is, these experiences open us up. They uncover our emotions. They peel away those defenses. And sometimes you can kind of use those experiences as almost like a backdoor into relating to other people in a more open and empathic and vulnerable way. And yeah, there are people out there that you don't want to relate that way to, pick people who are safe, but it can actually be really good practice. And certainly for me, one of the ways that I really kind of reprogrammed my own impulses around this was about having these experiences of vulnerable emotion, sharing them with other people, and really noticing it when it didn't go poorly. Mm really noticing it when I wasn't punished for it or mm. that the other person responded well for it. And that was one of the things that helped me really kind of start to reprogram how I related to other people. Well, that's great. And just building on what you're saying too, I think uh, it's like the heart is our true home, mm. really. And so when we come home to our heart, we're able to hold our issues in our heart. Mm. And it would be an interesting exercise for people maybe listening to this to think about something you're that's a problem for you. You're bothered by, you feel pressured around maybe, it's frustrating perhaps, maybe you worry about it. And what would it be like to first get a sense of being wholehearted, you know, grounded in your heart, the strong heart, all right, a warm heart, tapping into a sense of warmth and friendliness really, and compassion. And then inside that context of, warm-heartedness, felt warm-heartedness, reflect on your issue, reflect on your problem, and notice what changes about that. Notice how that feels. Mm -hmm. And one thing that might come to you when you do that is a sense of, quote-unquote, common humanity with others, other humans that we're related to, connected with, who also have had similar problems over the millennia. Not to make yours in any way less, not to make them any less particular to you, they matter, they really do matter. But somehow in a heartfelt sense of common humanity with others who've had similar issues and similar anxieties, it eases our own individual suffering. Mm, that's lovely, yeah. Well, hey, here's the fourth thing. Great. Do something. <laughs> do something. Good advice, yeah. Take action of one kind or another. Action binds anxiety. Action fosters a sense of agency. So much of what gets us about anxiety is helpless anxiety, where we feel immobilized and defeated and, and hopeless, so we don't know what to do and there's nothing we can do. That's horrible. It's so important to look for where you do have agency, where there is something you can make happen. So make a plan, make a plan. Like you said, Forrest, bound to the problem, accept what you can't control, Focus on what you can do, get a second opinion, make an appointment with a doctor, arrange for a ride, not to freak you out here, but get a will, you know, yeah. or something, or yeah. just make a plan, take action. If uh, mm -hmm. you're worried about not finding a soulmate mm. in this life, start taking action. Maybe take a look at some dating apps, maybe spread the word, take action. If you're worried about the neighborhood you're in, what action can you take? This is not to be unrealistic, but do what you can. And I've seen a lot of people, here's being kind of pointed, who are worried about this or that, but are not taking action. Mm -hmm. And then they're afraid to take action. Well, what action could you take that would make you less afraid of taking action? 
or even if you're anxious, accept that anxiety, recognize what's all right, take heart, great, that'll kind of enable you then to do something, mm. to take mm-hmm. some kind of action. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important, and there's no replacement for it. Maybe the action is inside your own mind. Yeah. Maybe it's just to say to yourself, you know, I can't do a darn thing about this. Mm. I'm doing everything I can. I hope for the best. And the action I'm going to take about this is I'm going to put my fear on a shelf. And maybe I'm going to dust it off and check in every morning after I've had some coffee. Hey, fear, how you doing? Any <laughs> any news? Any any new wisdom? And then like yeah. fear is going blah blah blah, same old same old blah blah, same old same old. You go, thank you, fear. I got it. You know, I'm going to check in tomorrow mm. if you got any news for me. And no news is good news actually. And then kaboom, you go on with your day. But that might be the action. On the other hand, reaching out to others, gathering expertise learning, taking little steps that will build up over time, do something. Yeah, and I totally co-sign everything that you're saying in terms of anxiety being completely associated with feelings of helplessness. I think that that's absolutely 100% true. We are often anxious about things that we feel like we cannot control. We feel like we are tied to the train tracks and the train is coming and there ain't nothing we can do about it. So it's nice to find little ways, as we've talked about a thousand times, that you feel like you can intervene out in the world. And to highlight something that you sort of mentioned in passing there, one of the great ways to do that is by being anticipatory about preventing future anxiety. Hmm. So what actions can you take today to deal with something that might be coming down the pipe a while from now Mm -hmm. so that you won't start to feel anxious when it's coming down the pipe a while from now because you have already begun to intervene. And there are kind of two ways to think about this. The first way is being actually preventative, you know, filing your taxes a month early or whatever, as I have not done this year, but you know, whatever, (laughs) maybe I'll take my own advice at some point in life. You could do that kind of stuff. You can actually like try to make it so that there's not this anxiety provoking thing in the future. But another way to do it that's been very useful for me is trying to prune back activities or behaviors in your life that tend to create anxiety for you. Mm. To use myself as an example, I'm using a lot less social media than I used to use Mm. because I was not happier when I just scrolled through Facebook for 30 minutes. Mm. I was almost always unhappier. I also started being a lot more selective about the kind of news that I consumed. This wasn't to bury my head in the sand. It was to be thoughtful about what I could actually do in the world and like where my effort would be most useful and what forms of effort was I engaging in that were not only not useful, but were kind of actively harming me. Mm. And by peeling back some of those activities, I noticed, wow, my anxiety has gone down, even though nothing's practically speaking different in my life. I'm just taking in different inputs so I can create a different output. That is very good. Well, thanks. <laughs> yeah, do something, anything. Yeah. And I think related to that, often we have beliefs about what we can't do or we have beliefs about a consequence of taking some kind of action that we don't like and it stirs up the dreaded experience. Mm. And as we've talked a lot about, these beliefs about taking action that obstruct us often have deep roots in our own childhood. And maybe they made sense. Maybe those beliefs made sense when we were 10 years old or 10 months old. And believing in them kept us out of things getting even worse, let's say. But today, they're just not true anymore. 
the bad event is not as likely to happen today as it was likely to happen when we were young. Second, even if it did happen today, it probably wouldn't feel as bad as it did when we were six years old because our nervous system is more mature and we have more ways of coping and regulating with our feelings. And third, in the unlikely event that it happened and that it still felt horrible, we could cope with it today much better than we could cope with it when we are young. So most often we tend to overestimate how bad things will be and underestimate actual opportunities. And so we can bring that to bear actually. And one of the most wonderful techniques I've ever learned in psychology is to draw a line down the middle of a page. And in the left-hand column, however you wanna label it, I call it wrong thoughts, list of belief. Like if I go see the doctor, she'll think I'm a terrible patient, and she'll be mean and horrible and I'll feel worse, right? That's a belief. And then in the right-hand column of your sheet of paper, list three or more rebuttals that you believe. Like, every single time I've gone to see the doctor, she was really nice. Second, she's supposed to abide by professional standards and not be mean to patients. Third, if she is mean to me, I'll find another doctor. Let's say, you know, these kind of rebuttals. So then you you basically dispute the so-called pathogenic beliefs. And then as a result, you become more able to do something. I think part of what's inherent in what you're saying is just not allowing really problematic beliefs to go uncontested inside of our own mind. Because we can accept the presence of fear, as we were saying earlier. This isn't pushing away. This isn't denying it or rejecting it or anything like that. It's saying, okay, there is fear here. There is anxiety here. Now it's about how do I relate with it? You know, what can I do to push back on it? What can I do to do kind of a a CBT style intervention where we're going to combat the negative thought and we're going to create all these various reasons why like I don't need to be as invested or as identified with it. So yeah, I think that's super useful practice for people. Yeah, it's helpful to appreciate how much there is an ongoing trickle of anxiety almost by mother nature's design biologically, to keep us on our toes. And it was really helpful back in the Stone Age. But today, it just creates, for many, many people in many situations, a lot of unnecessary suffering. In fact, it's delusional anxiety. There's no basis for it. And there's a term in psychology called signal anxiety. Anxiety functions as a signal. And yet, much of the time, that so-called signal is actually just noise. It's like a car alarm, blapping, 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 that doesn't really mean anything. And one of the things that happens is we get anxious, sometimes because of a physiological disturbance that creates a kind of primary uneasiness in the physical body, which then translates up in the mind as anxiety. And then we overinterpret from that anxiety that there must actually be something to worry about. But in fact, It's just noise. Mm -hmm. It's just an unpleasant anxiety. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. Just because you're anxious doesn't necessarily mean that there's a real threat around you. One way into this is by really appreciating the physiology of anxiety for me personally. And I'll, I'll use a personal anecdote here, which I think might be useful. I take something called 5-HTP most days, and I did for about 10, 15 years every day. It was totally transformative for me personally. It is a fairly gentle serotonin precursor 
that just allows your body to supply more serotonin. Because I'm kind of naturally a little dysthymic by nature, maybe leaning on the dysthymic spectrum, where I just have a little bit of a propensity for kind of lower mood states, maybe a little bit lower energy, and so on. When I first started taking 5-HTP, I didn't feel anything. And then over time, when I started taking it, I started getting a little buzz, almost like a little caffeine sort of buzz. And then what happened even more recently, as I think my serotonin system has maybe started to come online a little bit more in my early 30s, who knows, when I would take it along with a cup of coffee, I had this really interesting experience one morning where I started just getting really anxious. Mm. And I had no explanation for the really pretty significant experience of anxiety that was rising in my system. And I also tend to be a little bit anxious by nature, kind of like you were saying earlier. And then I realized that I had taken two of my five HTP, and then I had also had two and a half cups of coffee, and my body was just freaking out. Like, I was just <laughs> too revved. Right. And But here's the thing. It's a very, very similar system, if not the actual system, to your anxiety system. Yeah. It is very, very similar. Another kind of thing like this is that anxiety and excitement can feel incredibly similar mm. in people's bodies. And it's very normal for there to be essentially a little bit of cross-wiring around, is this excitement or is this anxiety? Am I really revved or am I freaking out? And these systems in the body are not perfect systems. They're not like really purely ideated one for another in terms of our psycho-emotional states that relate to them. So sometimes we'll have body sensations or just chemical processes that are happening inside of us that have nothing to do with the world outside of us. And for me, having more of like a lived experience of how chemical anxiety is kind of helped me like lighten up about it a little bit in a weird sort of way because I didn't have to be as identified with my physical experience. I could just be like, oh, this is a thing that's happening to me. It's not the way I actually feel about the world. And that separation was really helpful. Man, that's so great. It's to realize that a fair amount of anxiety, sometimes it is a signal. And listen to that signal. You're with that person and you're just getting a funny feeling. Yeah. Listen to that. For sure. Probably telling you something there. On the other hand, so much of our moods and our anxieties are meaningless. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's important to avoid the pitfall of regarding them as meaningless, and then it's a short hop to thinking you're meaningless too. It's all void. <laughs> no, no, just don't fall straight into Sorry. nihilism. Yeah, sure. Don't go there. But to just regard it, oh, it's just sensation. Yeah. Oh, it's, oh, there's a funny emotion with it. Oh, there's a thought associated with it. Mm -hmm. I don't need to believe it. I don't need to jump through hoops because of it. Fantastic. Well, that brings me to my fifth suggestion. Great, perfect. And you know me, you got a five-point plan, right? Um, <laughs> this one's the most hardcore. And I want to illustrate it with a story, uh, two stories here, actually. One story, it's a real event. I was, I don't know, eight or nine years old. Maybe I was older, which would be embarrassing. I don't know. But anyway, and I was just scared to death in my bed at, late at night that there truly was something under my bed. I was hearing funny noises. It didn't make sense. I read science fiction, fantasy books. So I said, who knows, through some portal between the universes, some monster just was in my bedroom, under my bed, you know, something creepy, who knows. And the fear was that if, of course, I looked under the bed, it would see me and then it would eat my face. And after a while, I got so tired of being scared 
I just nerved up my courage. It was one of the scariest things and most courageous things, you know, I've ever gone through. And I leaned over the bed and I was like, I give up. I give up. Eat my face. If you're there, I give up. And I leaned over and what did I see? Just a bunch of dust balls under the bed. And I was okay. There was nothing there. But to be able to do that, I had to surrender to whatever would happen. Surrender to whatever would happen. The worst case, whatever that might be, or whatever ultimately anchors your worst case. You know, can you surrender to that possibility? Can you accept? Yes. If it could happen, it could happen. Can you be at peace with that in a fundamental way? So I think that's the fifth one. That's a really important one where you just stop resisting the ultimate bad outcome. You don't prefer it. You do something that heads you in a different road. But at the end of the day, you surrender to the worst that can happen. Mm. I think that's a really powerful piece of advice. Yeah, I saved it for last for a reason. Yeah, and it completely dovetails with my own experience. I have many stories that are similar to the monster under the bed story. Mm. As a child, I was quite afraid of the dark, as you probably remember. Yeah. I had a nightlight, the whole thing. And for me, it, it was it was under the bed, absolutely. It was it was there. It was also in the closet. The closet was a big place of oh, yeah. fear and fascination at night where I was extremely confident that there were just a set of vampires hiding in there yeah. that were absolutely going to come for me the moment that I fell asleep. And I remember having these like very funny, I guess with the benefit of hindsight, kind of touching reflections as an eight-year-old about like, well, I've lived a good life and it'll be okay if they get me and I'll, I'll, I'll be happy. It'll be all right. But what I really hear in that story is essentially just an openness to impermanence and like an openness to the, the truth of life, which is that none of us are getting out of here alive. And coming to full contact with that reality can be a really powerful way to fight against all kinds of anxiety. Of course, this doesn't mean that we want to hasten this event. We don't want to make bad choices out in the world. But once you have acquired that level of kind of ultimate, well, it is what it is, a lot of other stuff can lighten up. You know, I'm glad we're talking about this and maybe we'll do a pod entirely on surrender. One of my friends, I talked with him, this is another memorable episode. Mm-hmm. And part of the amusing background is that we'd both, we're in our 20s and we'd both been drinking a fair amount and we were walking around Santa Monica. We were roommates and he was telling me just how upset he was about this woman who just didn't want to be with him. And he was trying to woo her and win her and he was really upset about that. And I said to him, uh, I'll again change the name here, Bob. This is Bob. It's a, not my friend Bob. This is a different pseudonym, Bob. This is a fantasy Bob. Fantasy yes. Bob. <laughs> anyway, but if Bob is listening, Bob knows who Bob is. But anyway, because Bob is still my friend. But anyway, so I, I basically said to Bob, who was a, a really strong, determined kind of person, I said, well, Bob, you know, honestly, you've tried everything you're really upset about it. Nothing's working. Maybe what you need to do is just surrender. And he kind of snarled at me. I don't do surrender. And that just didn't fit his nature and who knows, gender socialization. I don't surrender. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then a little bit later, he threw up on my foot. You know, I got it. It's okay. But classic, you know, yeah, yeah, I deserve Mm -hmm. it maybe. But that's really true. And there's uh, just a deep wisdom 
around accepting that there's so much we don't have control over. And we really have a choice, misery or surrender. Mm, mm -hmm. While meanwhile, doing something, you know, doing what you can. And to kind of underline something here that people can go to, what enables surrender? I mean, I'll share two things personally that enable surrender for me. One is, I kind of feel like reality threw me a birthday party on the day I was born. All these wild sights, sounds, all these strange causes reaching back millions of years that zoop, had to come together to enable this particular birth to happen with these particular parents, Bill and Helen. And there it was. And it was a whole birthday party. It was sound, sights, reality, whatever. Wow. And some of which was painful. Okay. And then day two, whoa, another party, a reality party. You know, all kinds of stuff, right? Amazing. A human brain and what's going on and people and here <laughs> and there, sound sites, so forth. And every day since then has been another kind of reality party, which has included some pretty sucky things, even though I've had advantages and privileges and so forth. Still, some real sucky things, but each day is like an extraordinary gift. Mm. And so, in the in the context then of just the extraordinary gift, even in a life with significant difficulties, and I I think other people can decide for themselves if they can relate to their lives in this way. I'm not saying that people should relate to their lives in this way, you know, because I'm speaking from a fair amount of good fortune in my own background and good and story. But I think that if a person can broadly just sort of relate to every day as this awestruck, gobsmacked with gratitude, amazing kind of gift of a human life. Well, eventually, reality will throw you your last party. This will be your last day. It will be the last party. Dang, I'd sure like another party. <laughs> you know, what's the line? Who would ever want to be a, a hundred? Someone who's 99. Yeah. You know, and yet, and then, okay, sad to have this be the last party. Got to surrender to it being the last party. But it's in the context of all those other extraordinary reality parties every other previous day. And that, that can really help. That can help a person. And then last, uh, if you can relate to it at all, there is the sense that supports surrender of our oneness, really, with everything. You know, we're part of everything, just a fact. You know, ecologically, we're part of everything. We're part of human culture. Our bodies are made of stardust. Uh, we're breathing the exhalations of trees. All these kind of tropes, they're really true. They're actually really true. And more and more, you can get a sense of a softening of the boundaries between the person process you are and everything else. It's like the wave in the, the middle of the Pacific Ocean recognizes it's a distinct wave with its own little pattern of foam. And yet it is a local expression of the entire world girdling ocean, the one ocean really that enwraps the entire earth. And fundamentally, the nature of every single wave is, of course, water. And as you feel that more and more, you can become increasingly peaceful and surrendered to whatever the fate may eventually be due to vast flows of causes and conditions of your own particular wave. 
Well, that's a lovely reflection, Dan. I think a great encapsulation and summary, actually, of a lot of the stuff that we discuss on the podcast broadly. So way to <laughs> way to bring it home at the end there, man. That was great. Surf's up. <laughs> <laughs> so I think on that note, I can't really come up with a with a better way to close the episode. So I think you just kind of did the job for me there. But yeah, I think that that was totally lovely. And what a lovely way to put an exclamation point on our conversation here today about dealing with an acute experience of anxiety. So today we talked about how to manage an experience of anxiety. We did that by starting with a hypothetical experience, in this case having an upcoming doctor's appointment that feels a bit threatening, and walking through a deliberate process of how somebody could interact with that experience in a way that maybe could start to calm some of their anxiety. As Rick often does, he had his five-point plan for dealing with anxiety, and it began with the first step, acceptance. When we push away our experience, we can't really do too much that's effective about it. If we just deny that something is happening to us, well, how can we intervene to really change it? This is very consistent with Stephen Hayes' approach to ACT therapy, which begins with accepting the truth of your experience, even the parts of it that are pretty painful. Second, recognize that you're all right right now. Most anxiety is anticipatory. It is an anticipatory experience almost by definition. Yes, sometimes there are things that are happening around us right now that it is appropriate to be anxious about. But we generally use different words for those kinds of experiences. We talk about fear, we talk about panic, or whatever else. Anxiety is mostly anticipatory. And related to that, your physical system is designed to be fine-tuned for anxiety. Anxiety is what kept our ancestors alive under incredibly harsh conditions. And your brain is actually quite similar today to the one that your ancestors had 20 or 30, maybe even 50,000 years ago. So there's no surprise, really, that those same systems are alive and well in us today. Another version of this could be thought of as bounding the problem. A lot of the time, anxiety likes to assume the worst. We create these elaborate fantasies in our mind about how bad things will be when we finally talk to that other person or when we step into the doctor's office. And sometimes it can be really helpful to bind the problem to its realistic foundation Yes, it's possible that the doctor will find something wrong, and it's possible that the consequences of that are really significant. But most of the time, it's probably going to be okay. My dad's melanoma turned out all right. It was a total pain. He had to go through a procedure for it. There were real things that had to be dealt with. It was scary. But at the end of the day, everyone turned out all right. And having that framework in the back of our minds that, you know, probably this is going to be okay, really helped us feel better throughout the whole experience. Then, third step, take heart. This was Rick's way of saying, find connection with other people, and find connection with yourself. Connection with your own emotions, with your softer parts, and hey, maybe even just being real about wanting a hug. At the biggest level, a sense of common humanity, a feeling for other people who are going through similar experiences to you. There could even be a feeling of courage associated with this, the sense that other people are maybe cheering you on. Then, fourth, take action. Do something. Move away from the experience of helplessness. Claim your agency how you can. Make a plan. Take some form of action out in the world. 
or at the very least, if there is no action to take out in the world, take it inside of your mind. Say, look, there's nothing that I can do about this experience and there is nothing I can do about this anxiety. But maybe what I can do is suffer a little bit less while it's going on. Maybe I can put my anxiety up on a shelf and look at it in the morning and then put it back in the afternoon. Maybe I can limit its influence over my life as a whole. But most of the time, there is something that we can actually do out in the world that would help us feel less anxious. And even unrelated experiences of agency might help reinforce the experience that we can make change in a positive way in our lives. Then, finally, fifth step, surrendering to what's possible, in the ultimate sense of surrender. Maybe there is a monster under the bed, maybe there is a vampire in your closet, and sometimes having this discrete sense of, you know what, if this gets me, it gets me before you stick your head in the closet, actually is really freeing. It's what enables you to take that brave action. And if this kind of thing is meaningful to you, maybe even there's a broader sense of oneness with other things. The feeling of being a local manifestation of something much larger. And I think that for many people, that's a powerful resource and a way to find inner peace during experiences where it feels like no peace is available. So that's it for today's episode focused on managing an experience of anxiety. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating or a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, we're on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast if you'd like to support the show. We have dedicated episodes for our patrons. We do expanded show notes for them. I do a lot of research that goes into those show notes. They actually are quite a bit of work. And also, it's a lot of fun along the way. Finally, I have a new YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash C slash Forrest Hansen. I'll also include a link to it in the description of today's episode. I create videos on topics kind of similar to what we explore on the podcast. If you're a visual learner, it might really help you out. So thanks so much for listening to today's conversation, and thanks for supporting the podcast in general. It really does mean a lot to me, and I really enjoy doing this work. And it's been really great to do it alongside such a wonderful community of people. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.